If you have your Bible with you, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 8. So you can grab that if you want and start turning there. uh, Or the words will be up on the screen in just a moment. You know, as I see you this morning and and, uh, I look out across the room, there's a lot of differences here. I'm sure we have a lot of different opinions on things, a lot of different thoughts on things. But I bet there's one thing that all of us have in common. I bet there's one thing that no matter where you come from or or uh, what you're walking through, or uh, that there's something that we all hold in common. And I think one thing that all of us hold in common is all of us, at the end of the day, we would just love to be able to go through our day and go through our lives happy, right? Wouldn't it be great just to be happy uh, and to be able to walk through life just feeling uh, happy and content and fulfilled? That's one thing that all of us would love to experience, wouldn't we? And sometimes we have those these moments, these moments of true joy and spontaneous joy and contentment and happiness, and they don't have to necessarily be big things, but these little moments that if you're like me, you wish you could just bottle up and experience all the time. When over Christmas, we were visiting my family in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, and we all chipped in and we bought my dad uh, Alexa. The Amazon Alexa, the, the little box there that controls your house. And uh, my dad is a, is a gadget guy, enjoys the gadgets, and so we thought he would like that. And our kids figured out that if you go up to Alexa, they figured out two things that they loved. One is they could say, Alexa, please play, or not please play, but Alexa, play Thomas and Friends theme song. And Alexa would play the Thomas and Friends theme song, and they loved that. Uh, and that we loved it too for the first two times it played, and then it wasn't... <laughs> And then they figured out that they could say, Alexa, tell me a joke. And Alexa will tell you a joke. So they said, Alexa, tell us a joke. And Alexa said this. Where does Napoleon keep his armies? In his sleeves. All right? Now, I like that joke. So now fast forward like three months later, two months later. The other day, my five-year-old daughter comes up to me and she says, Dad... Where do polar bears keep their armies? And I said, polar bears? Where do polar bears keep their armies? And I said, I don't know. Where? And she said, in their sleeves. And I said, no. I said, Caitlin, honey, it's Napoleon. Where does Napoleon keep his armies? And she said, and she started dying laughing. And she said, Dad, Napoleon's not a real thing. She said, polar bears. Where do polar bears keep their armies? And so uh, my five-year-old daughter and I, here we are laughing with each other in this moment over something that doesn't even make any sense. But it's this moment that I wish I could just capture. Don't you wish you could just take those moments? Not a big moment, but just take a moment like that, bottle it up, capture it, and hang on to it, and experience that all the time. That's what we would love to have. But we understand that the problem with happiness, right, is it's elusive. It's elusive. It's something that's based on circumstance. When circumstances are perfect, we feel happy, and we can laugh with a child over a joke that doesn't even make sense. And we can enjoy those pieces of life, but happiness is elusive, and when circumstances change, happiness comes and goes. But we all want it. It's even how we tend to make our decisions, If you go to someone for advice and you have choices ahead of you and you have, let's say, two jobs that you could take 
or two places you could move or a relationship that you could begin. And you go to somebody else and you say, should I take this job or should I move to this place or should I begin this relationship? They may say back to you. In fact, most people will say back to you, well, what do you think will make you happy? Does the job make you happy? Does he make you happy? Does she make you happy? What makes you happy? And we base a lot of our decisions upon whether or not they make us happy because at the end of the day, all we would really want is to be content and satisfied and fulfilled. Well, this morning, I want to introduce you to a couple of people uh, who I would say are some of the happiest people that you could meet. Uh, One of them lived uh, just about 100 years ago, a little over 100 years ago, and two of them lived a long time ago. There's uh, two gentlemen I want to introduce you to and one woman. The woman lived uh, a long time ago. And her story is that she grew up and had an okay life. She decided to get married when she was young. And so she got married uh, to her husband, and they went through the whole process. It was a big celebration. Everyone had a good time. And then, as it happens sometimes, that marriage didn't really work out. It didn't last. So she separated from her first husband, and she ended up getting married again, though. And she got married a second time, and everyone was happy, and there was a celebration. But that marriage, too, didn't work out. And so she didn't feel great about it, but she decided to get married for a third time, and then a fourth. And by the time she got married for the fifth time, she really knew the ceremony better than the person who was officiating. The reality is that fifth marriage didn't work out either. And so she separated from her fifth husband, and she said, you know what, I'm not even going to try marriage anymore. And so she moved in uh, with her boyfriend, and she lived in a culture in a time that everything that she had done was really frowned upon. There's a lot of shame, a lot of embarrassment. And so she went to the length of just avoiding everybody else. She knew what they were thinking when they looked at her. She could hear them whisper. She could see the snickers. And so she made a decision. She wouldn't even hang out when the other people were around because she didn't want to deal with the other people that she lived in in her town. So when everyone else went out to do all their errands and all their chores and everything that needed to to be done, she would wait until they all came in, and then she would go out and take care of what she needed to do. That's the first person I'd like to introduce you to. The second person is a man who lived about the same time period. Uh, He was a a good guy, traveled a lot for work. Uh, He had a message that he was teaching uh, to a lot of people, and he was helping a lot of people uh, in in the area in which he lived. And he was doing good work. And a lot of people, they would tell you that because this man came to their town, their life was completely changed. But not everybody liked what this man was doing. And so eventually, the authorities, they arrested him. And since this was a long time ago, there weren't a lot of laws that were protecting him. He was beaten. He was tortured. He was abused. And eventually was left in a prison cell to sit there. The third person I'd like you to meet lived in the late 1800s. 
1871, he had uh, a thriving business in Chicago. But wouldn't you know that's the year that allegedly old Mrs. Leary's cow kicked the lantern over in the shed, and Chicago burned to the ground, and he lost his business and everything that he had been working for in a moment. He had a wife, (coughs) excuse me, and four daughters. And so he said to his wife and daughters in 1873, you guys head back to England. I'm going to finish closing up the business, and then I'll join you. His wife and his daughters got on a vessel headed from New York to England uh, along their crossing uh, across the Atlantic Ocean. Their vessel hit another vessel from Scotland. It took 12 minutes before their vessel sunk. And eventually this man received a telegram from his wife with just two words on it, saved alone. And he knew his four daughters had died at sea. You may be sitting there thinking to yourself, Pastor, I don't think you know what the definition of the word happy is. These do not sound like happy people going through happy situations in their lives. In fact, you may be sitting there thinking to yourself, you told me you were going to introduce me to three of the happiest people I could ever want to meet, but uh, these people's lives sound a lot like my life. And I struggle with happiness. I struggle with contentment. These sound like people who have lost a lot, who have walked through some difficult circumstances. These sound like people who are, are shamed by those around them, sound like some people who feel, who are lonely, who are struggling with what life's purpose is, who are struggling with being content. That's what these people sound like. It doesn't sound like happiness at all to me. Remember, we said the problem with happiness, the problem with that emotion is it's always based on circumstance. And we keep chasing it, and we can never seem to find it. The secret would be, if we could figure out a way to experience true joy and true contentment, regardless of circumstance, that would be the thing that would truly change our life. If we could figure out a way, regardless of circumstance, where happiness is so dependent on what we're walking through at any given moment, if we could figure out a way to figure out, to to experience true contentment and true joy, regardless of the circumstances of life, that would be the thing that would actually change our lives. So many people in our world and so many of us are running from thing to thing, trying to figure out how to find satisfaction in this life, trying to figure out how to find happiness in this life, trying to figure out how to find contentment in this life, and we can't figure it out. The great thing would be if we could find something that would bring us that contentment we long for, regardless of what we're walking through. Well, there is a secret formula. It won't be a secret after we talk about it, I guess, this morning. But there is a formula that we see here in Nehemiah chapter 8. That there are two things in your life and in my life that when they come together, when these two things come together, in my life and your life and the people's lives in this passage we're about to look like, when these two things come together, the result is true happiness and true joy and true contentment. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. In Nehemiah chapter 8, 
If you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've been walking through this story of Nehemiah. And, and Nehemiah has been in this big process of rebuilding the city walls around Jerusalem. And as we see these people in Nehemiah chapter 8, think about this group of people that we're, we're talking about here. These are not people that have had easy lives. These are people that for generations the Israelites have been in exile. They're living in their own land that God has given them. But somebody else is in control. And it has not been easy. A few hundred years earlier, the Babylonians came in and they took charge. And the Babylonians were ruthless people. They destroyed the city of Jerusalem and scattered the Jewish people across the land. They didn't just destroy buildings, they destroyed culture, and they destroyed the covenant relationship between God and his people. And so uh, the Israelites have slowly been rebuilding after that moment. And the Persians, they're still ruling, but the Persians who are in charge in Nehemiah, they're a little bit uh, less ruthless than the Babylonians. And so they've allowed the Israelites to start rebuilding. They rebuilt their temple. Uh, they've rebuilt much of the city. And Nehemiah has this last piece of the building project. He's rebuilding the walls around the city of Jerusalem. And what happens here in Nehemiah chapter 8 is that the city walls have been completed. The project is done. And if you look at the end of Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 73, we see that the writer of Nehemiah, that Nehemiah gives us the date and the time when it is. So in Nehemiah chapter 7, 73, it said, And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel lived in their towns. Now, why is this significant? Well, in the Old Testament, the people were told that on the first day of the seventh month, they were to all gather together for a holy gathering called the Festival of Trumpets or the Feast of Trumpets. And so Nehemiah is letting us know that it's time for the Feast of Trumpets, a time when everybody would gather. And so they built a, uh, try to picture this with me. They built a giant platform and they had the priest, Ezra, and all the other priests come out onto the platform and they had them read the law to the people. So read the Old Testament law to the people. Those books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, all being read to the people as they were gathered. And I don't know if you can picture it, but picture thousands and thousands of people gathering and standing for hours on end just to hear uh, someone say something of importance. We don't do that much anymore these days. In fact, I wonder, I wonder, what do you think that would look like if thousands of people gathered together just to hear someone say something important from a platform? It might look something like this. But these people gathered for something far more important. They set up their platform and they all gathered together and they all stood in the city square. And the priests with Ezra and Nehemiah, they read the law of God to the people. And something happened to these people when they heard the law. All they had been through, the exiles, and the pain of having their culture broken down, their people scattered, the struggle they had walked through to rebuild this wall under constant threat of people, their enemies around them trying to stop them, under constant threat of their lives being threatened for what they're doing, all of a sudden, all of that combined with the reality now, as they heard the law of God, that they were not living up to the standards that God was calling them to live up to. 
They heard the law read, the book of Leviticus, the book of Numbers, the book of Deuteronomy, all the law read in front of them as they stood listening to it, and something happened to them inside. It was like it all came to a head, where all this pain and suffering they had walked through as a people, and then hearing the law of God, and understanding now that they were falling so short of what God wanted them to do, that people couldn't take it any longer. And what we see in verse 9 of Nehemiah chapter 8, is that the people responded by weeping. It says, all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. They couldn't take it anymore. It was too much grief. It was too much shame. It was too much pain. And the entire community reacted in this way of great mourning and great weeping. I said to you that in our lives, if we want to experience true contentment and true satisfaction, there's two things that need to come together. The first thing that we have to have in our life is an understanding of what it looks like to be truly sorrowful and truly grieving and truly in mourning. You might hear me say that, and you might say to me, all right, good, pastor. I've got that one. I understand that one. I know what it's like to have grief. I know what it's like to have sorrow. I know what it's like to experience pain. That one I have. A couple years ago, there was a study done trying to determine uh, what the happiest time of the day is. Not just uh, for one culture, but across cultures. What's the happiest time of the day? And so what the researchers did is they looked at Twitter, and they looked at Twitter accounts from all across the world, and they found a very particular pattern. That is, the happiest tweets from all across the world, the United States, Africa, South America, Asia, the happiest tweets all came early in the morning, first thing in the morning, or at night just before bedtime. And in between were all the unhappy tweets throughout the day. And the researcher said what that reveals to us is something that you and I already know. That we're often happiest when we first wake up and the promise of a great day is ahead of us. And when we're going to bed and we say to ourselves, maybe tomorrow will be better. And in between those two moments of happiness is the reality of life. And we go to work and work is hard sometimes. And we deal with our families, and that's difficult sometimes. We try to drive from our house to the grocery store, and there's so much frustration in just trying to drive these roads, we start to lose our minds. Life is difficult, and life is hard. And all that that Twitter study did is reveal what we already know. We know what it's like to feel upset, and we know what it's like to feel shame. We know what it's like to feel pain. We know what it's like to feel sorrow. And for the priests that see these people weeping and mourning, they have what is, to me, seems a very unusual response. All the religious leaders are on this platform, and they read the law of the Lord, and then everybody's crying and weeping. Do you know what that normally is to a priest or a religious leader standing up front? A giant success. If we went, if we went back and Pastor Rick came up to me and he said, he said, how did it go on Sunday morning in Burlington? How did it go? And I said, it was great. We had like 30 people crying their eyes out. We had to get boxes of Kleenex. We had to order more Kleenex for next Sunday. It was a great sermon. The Lord moved and everyone was crying and weeping. That's usually great success in church world. 
That's where we want to get people. And some of us, we think that's what church is about, that all the smiling and the laughing happens out in the parking lot. And then you walk in and you're very somber. And you have the hello, it's good to see you. That's how church works. But the priests, they have this very, what can appear unusual response. And this is what they say to the people. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9. This day is to be holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, this is Ezra the high priest, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Say that with me. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The priests have an unusual response here. You would think they would say to themselves, they would close this book and they would say, good. Everyone understands how bad they are. Everyone is weeping and grieving. That's a good thing. But this is what the priests are saying to the people. This feast of trumpets that we're in, and in just a couple of weeks, the people, the Israelites, they would celebrate something called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, which is a festival designed to remember God's faithfulness to his people in the desert. How after the Israelites came out of Egypt and spent 40 years wandering the desert before they were ushered into the promised land, God took care of his people and provided for them. The the, the religious leaders said to the people, listen, this is not a time to be mournful, even in the midst of your grief, even in the reality of all that's happened over these last couple hundred years of exile, even in the hardship you've endured, trying to rebuild this wall around the city, even in the reality that God is perfect and holy and you are not. This is not an appropriate time to be sad. This is a time to rejoice because you serve a great and gracious and mighty and merciful God. And so that reality, no matter what grief and sorrow that you're experiencing in your life, no matter what you're experiencing right now, the reality that God's grace is bigger than all of that must come together and lead you to a moment of rejoicing. And so what the the religious leaders were saying to the people is, yes, you have your sorrow and your weeping, but you want to experience true contentment, you want to experience true joy, here's what you have to remember. The second ingredient that comes together is the grace of your God. And when the two of those things come together, the reality of circumstances and sorrow in this world, the reality that I'm a sinner, the reality of experiencing pain and loss and grief and shame in this life, the reality of the difficulty of every single day, when that reality comes into contact with the grace and the mercy and the goodness of the God we serve, there is a, an immediate reaction, the priests are telling the people, an immediate reaction, remembering how good and gracious God is that should express itself in great joy and rejoicing. And so they say to the people, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Because no matter what you're walking through here, when you combine that with the grace and the mercy of God and the two come together, the reality of that situation of God's goodness and God's grace spontaneously erupts in joy and rejoicing. 
you remember when uh, you were a kid and you made one of those paper mache volcanoes? Or maybe someone in your class made one uh, for, for the science fair. You've seen someone make one of these. Well, you put together the homemade volcano and you put a container in the, in the base of that volcano. And then what are the two ingredients? Does anyone know? You have baking soda, right? And then what do you pour in after the baking soda? Vinegar. And what happens when the vinegar hits the baking soda? There is an immediate reaction, right? An immediate spontaneous reaction that happens somewhere down in the depths of that paper mache volcano and explodes out the top. And it should be the same thing the religious leaders are telling the people in our lives. When the sorrow and the grief that we experience meets the goodness and the grace of a God who, for the people in the Old Testament, watched over them through exile and took care of their ancestors in the desert. And for us, the God who offers us salvation through, this, through Jesus Christ, when those two things come together, the Bible says there should be a spontaneous reaction somewhere deep down inside of us that overflows in joy and rejoicing and contentment for the joy of the Lord is our strength. So look at what happens here in Nehemiah chapter 8. When the people, in verse 12, when the people start to get this, when the people start to understand what the religious leaders are saying, they stopped crying. And the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And once they understood that there is difficulty and sorrow and that when we measure ourselves up to God, we fall so far short. But when they understood that reality in combination with the grace and the goodness offered to them by their God, they had no other response than to go and do the rejoicing that the priests were calling them to do. And then all of a sudden, it wasn't a happiness just based on circumstance. It wasn't something where they would say, listen, it's a bad day today. Building the wall was hard. We're still in exile. The Persians are still in control. Where is this God who said he was going to take care of his people? Where is this God who said the Israelites were his people? All of a sudden, it's not, it's not uh, based on circumstances anymore. All of a sudden, their joy and their contentment is based in something much greater and much bigger. The reality that their God is still in control. The reality that their God sits on the throne. The reality that the God who led the Israelites out of, the, out of Egypt and took care of them in the desert is the exact same God who is watching over them in that moment. And he would absolutely fulfill his promises to them. And when they recognized the two of those things together, and they came together, there's no other response than great Rejoicing. You see, at the intersection of our grief and God's grace, there is always great joy. And if you're looking for something that is going to fulfill you completely, you're out there chasing happiness and running around and you can't seem to catch it. You thought it would be in the next relationship. You thought it would be in the next job. You thought it would be in the next home. You thought it would be once you, once you finally uh, put on all the right music or got the right friends. You thought once you figured all that stuff out, then happiness would be found. And what you found is that no matter how many times you play the song happy, happiness still continues to elude you. No matter how many times you, you went somewhere else or changed jobs or hung around different people, the happiness just continues to, to elude you. You need something that's not based on the circumstances of this world. You need something that's based on something much deeper and much greater. 
You need something that's based outside of this world, and that is the God who is in control and who is merciful and gracious to us no matter what we're walking through in this life. So you remember this woman, married five times, living with her boyfriend that she's not married to now. The woman who would avoid everyone in town. This was a long time ago. People had to go to a well and draw water. And everyone went in the, when the day was cool, in the morning hours. But not this woman. She didn't want to go to the well when everyone else was there. They would talk. They would look at her. And so she went in the heat of the day when it was empty. And she's standing by the well, and this man walks up to her. You can read about it in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. Jesus walks up to her and knows everything that she's gone through, knows everything that she walks th- has walked through. And still in that moment, even after revealing to her that he knows who she is and he knows what she's walked through and he knows what she's done, the reality that he would spend time in her presence, the reality that he would speak to her, that he would show the grace and mercy to her to show love towards her radically changes her life so that in a moment she is back down in the town and in the village in front of all of those people that she's been trying to avoid, telling them that she's met this man who told her everything that she's ever done and still showed her grace and telling everybody else that they should come and that they should meet him too. And this man who was going through the world and going from town to town, helping people out, changing people's lives so that he was beaten and thrown in prison as he was rotting in that prison cell in a prison in Rome, was able to write the words in Philippians chapter 4, I have learned the the secret of being content in any and every circumstance. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And in 1873... Horatio Spafford, upon hearing that his four daughters had drowned in their crossing across the Atlantic Ocean, he bought a ticket to head back to London to be with his wife. And on that trip, wrote the words to the hymn, It is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, When sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Even so, it is well with my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The Lord will descend. The trump shall resound and the Lord will descend. Even so, it is well with my 
soul. Horatio Spafford, the Apostle Paul, the Samaritan woman at the well, their joy, their contentment was rooted in something much deeper than life's circumstances and life's ups and downs. It was rooted in the reality that even though we experience sorrow in this world, God's grace is much greater. And when the two come together, we recognize that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And for the people in Nehemiah 8, great pain and suffering, not living up to the measure God had given them. But when they came into contact that they served a gracious and merciful God, they had no choice but to rejoice in who he is. And for you, you lost somebody. You lost someone close to you or you're losing somebody close to you. And the pain and the grief and the sorrow of that is almost too much to bear. Would you be reminded that we serve the God who gives us hope through Jesus Christ for all eternity? And so in that moment of grief and suffering, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And some of us in this room, we have made mistakes in our lives that are haunting us. Things we've done in the past that we cannot get over. Would you know today that if you would come and give your life to Jesus Christ and submit to him, that there is nothing you've done that the blood of Jesus Christ does not cover and does not forgive. And would the joy of the Lord in that moment be your strength. And whenever this world is too much to bear and the things of this world are too difficult, when you're lonely, when you're depressed, when you're searching for significance and you cannot find it, would the reality of your sorrow and grief meet the reality of the grace and mercy of God, which is bigger than anything in this world. And when the two come together in your life, would the joy of the Lord be your strength. Live in that truth today. Believe it today. Our God is good and he is great and he is merciful and he is powerful. And no matter what you're walking through today, he is greater. Amen. And when your grief meets God's grace, there is always great joy. Is there any greater moment in history of grief and sorrow and God's grace coming together than at the cross of Jesus Christ? Is there any other moment, any other picture of what we're talking about this morning that is greater than the cross of Jesus Christ where Jesus takes the sin and suffering of all of humanity on his shoulders and goes to his death that you and I might find mercy and grace and life. The great pastor and author Tim Keller says this. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. 